The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Okay, Psalm 5 to the chief musician with flutes, a Psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my meditation. Give heed to the voice of my cry, my King and my God. For to you I will pray, my voice you shall hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning I will direct it to you, and I will look up. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, nor shall evil dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand in your sight. You hate all workers of iniquity. You shall destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. As for me, I will come into your house in the multitude of your mercy. In fear of you, I will worship toward your holy temple. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before my face, for there is no faithfulness in their mouth. Their inward part is destruction. Their throat is an open tomb. They flatter with their tongue. Pronounce them guilty, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Cast them out in the multitude of their transgressions, for they have rebelled against you. But let all those rejoice who put their trust in you. Let them ever shout for joy because you defend them. Let those also who love your name be joyful in you. For you, O Lord, will bless the righteous with favor. You will surround him as with a shield. Okay, here we go. We're going to go to uh, Deuteronomy 11. We're in verses 22 through 32 today. This is entitled, The Blessing and the Curse. Verse 22, For if you carefully keep all these commandments, which I command you to do, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to hold fast to him, then the Lord will drive out all these nations from before you, and you will dispossess greater and mightier nations than yourselves. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads shall be yours from the wilderness and Lebanon, from the river, the river Euphrates, even to the western sea shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand against you. The Lord your God will put the dread of you and the fear of you upon all the land where you tread, just as he has said to you. Behold, I set before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and the curse if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way which I command you today, to go after other gods which you have not known. Now it shall be when the Lord your God has brought you into the land which you go to possess, that you shall put the blessing on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Ebal. Are they not on the other side of the Jordan, toward the setting sun? In the land of the Canaanites who dwell in the plain opposite Gilgal, beside the terebinth trees of Moreh, for you will cross over the Jordan and go in to possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you, and you will possess it and dwell in it, and you shall be careful to observe all the statutes and judgments which I set before you today. Out of a uh, 1 to 10 scale, this is probably about a 7. I mean, if I get up above a 5, I try to let you know. It's a little complicated. If you feel lost, go home and read it four or five times and you'll get it. But there's a lot of information, and yet it's a really beautiful passage. The idea of a curse is that of vilification. 
There are lots of words translated as curse in the Old Testament, and together they come up to over 150 uses. All in all, the idea of the curse permeates the Old Testament writings. Curses are mentioned in the New Testament as well, in various ways and with various Greek words. The story of the Bible is that of man falling under a curse and how God is working to end that state. It all started in Genesis 3 when the man disobeyed the Lord by following the lies of the serpent instead of obeying the command of God. But it was the command of God that made that possible. Now, there's nothing wrong with God giving the command, and he had every right to do so. But without a law, no law could be broken. As for the serpent, for what he did, he received the first curse of the Bible. And the ground that man would till would likewise be cursed, the second noted curse. Working all the way through Scripture, these various words translated as curse are seen. But the most incredible one of all is the one that Paul speaks of in Galatians 3, verse 13, that will be cited during our sermon today. It is an amazing thing that God has done in order to remove the idea of any remaining curse. We got ourselves into the mess we are in, and the Lord got us out of it. We know this is true because the book is written. And on the last page of it, we are told the words of our text verse for today from Revelation 22. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit in every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, and there shall be no more curse. But the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. As we progress through our verses today, we will get to a point where Moses speaks of the blessing and the curse. It is only an introductory thought that will be greatly expanded on later. But the idea of these words is given in relation to the law. As I said, without a law, there can be no infraction. It is by law that sin comes about. And with the coming of sin, we see the coming of the curses. We just saw that the Bible ends with the thought of no more curse. But how does the Old Testament end? It ends with the words of Malachi, from Malachi 4, verse 6, And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. Malachi was a prophet under the law of Moses. He was there to call the people to a right standing before the Lord. If that didn't happen, then the earth would be struck with a curse. If the law brings about a curse, and a curse was promised at the end of the Old Testament, and yet there is no more curse at the end of the New Testament, then what does that tell us? It tells us that what we need is grace, not the law. This is the continued lesson of the law. The curses that Moses will refer to today and in the chapters to come mean that grace is not at the forefront of the time of the law. In fact, the law and grace are mutually exclusive. Let us remember this. It is an important lesson that is to be found in his superior word. And so let us turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. I have just two thoughts for you today. The first is, just as he has said to you. It's verses 22 through 25. Verse 22, for if you carefully keep all these commandments, 
it is singular, not plural. Ki'im shamor tishmerun et kal mitzvah. For if keeping you, certainly keep all the commandments. The word here, shamar, meaning to keep, is repeated for emphasis. Further, it is accentuated with a paragogic nun, an additional letter at the end of the word to provide further stress. Moses is being especially emphatic that Israel must be extremely attentive and diligent to heed and to act. Further, being in the singular, he is speaking about a codified body that is a unified law. How this is done will be explained in the final clause of the verse. For now, it is understood that the command is to be carefully shamor, or kept. It is a common word already seen many times. It signifies to watch over, to take heed to, and so on. Moses is telling them that as a guard watches over a jail, or a gardener watches over a garden, so the people, it is plural, you all, are to watch over the observance of the commandment. Verse 22, which I command you to do. It is still plural, you all. Each of you is to carefully watch over the words that I am now commanding you. The words I speak are given as authority to you, and they are binding upon you. And the substance of what I say to you is, verse 22 going on, to love the Lord your God. The words complement what has been said several times concerning loving the Lord. In Deuteronomy 6, 7, 10, and now for the third of three times in chapter 11. He has said it in both the singular, you Israel, and in the plural, you all. Here it is in the plural. He then says, verse 22 continues, to walk in all his ways. These words complement what has been said in Deuteronomy 8 and 10. In those two references, Moses was speaking to Israel in the singular, but here he is speaking to them in the plural. In chapter 8, he says, in his ways. In chapter 10, he says, in all his ways. The reason for these changes is certainly to avoid any hint of manipulation concerning the precept on the part of the people. By speaking to them in the singular and in the plural, nobody can say, as long as the nation is obedient, my faults are excused. And no one can say, as long as I am obedient, I won't see any trouble in my life. Further, nobody can say, Moses said to walk in his ways, but not necessarily in all of his ways. The wickedness of the human heart is what is being dealt with here. This is obvious from the manifold ways of saying basically the same thing by Moses. It is essentially the lesson that Jesus spoke to the leaders of Israel concerning their attitude towards matters of the law. He said in Matthew 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you pay the tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. The weightiest matter of the law is first and foremost loving the Lord, followed by loving one's neighbor. The Pharisees failed, legalists in the church fail, and those who think they can manipulate the relationship between themselves and the Lord by simply straining out gnats prove their attitude is inexcusable. Understanding this, Moses proceeds. Verse 22 continues, and to hold fast to him. The word is dabak, to cleave or hold fast to. One should get the sense of not just grabbing and holding on, but doing so with the impossibility of letting go. It is used this way concerning the relationship of Israel to the Lord four times in the book of Deuteronomy. The use of the word in those four times speaks to both Israel the nation 
and to the individual Israelite. The nation cannot blame the individuals, and the individuals cannot blame the nation if the consequences of failure come upon them. But in obedience to the precept, verse 23, then the Lord will drive out all these nations from before you. The clause is still in the plural, you all, but the same thing has been said in the singular to the nation as well elsewhere, you, Israel. Again, it is important to see what Moses is doing by stating it in both ways. Because it speaks of the people in the plural, it would be preferable to translate this as peoples instead of nations. The people of Israel will drive out the peoples of the land. And more, as elsewhere, the word yarash is used, and it is used in both clauses of this verse. It signifies possession or inheritance. One might say, and the Lord will disinherit all these people from before your faces. What they have owned as a possession will be removed from them by the Lord. But in an act of synergy, which means the two working as one, Moses then also acknowledges it is Israel who will do the task. Verse 23 continues, And you will dispossess greater and mightier nations than yourselves. And you all, plural, and you all will disinherit peoples, greats, and mighties from you. Moses just said the Lord will disinherit the peoples. Now he says that Israel will do so. In this, some translations will say drive out and dispossess. Some will say dispossess and possess and so on. But the thought is the same. The idea is that the Lord is the force behind what is accomplished and Israel is the one who does the accomplishing. If the Lord decides to not work with Israel, the objective will not be met even if Israel strives to accomplish the task. In other words, the act is synergistic, meaning working together, and Israel's completion of it is wholly dependent on the Lord's will. As long as Israel works in accord with the will of the Lord in the service of the Lord, then, verse 24, every place on which the sole of your foot treads shall be yours. Kau hamakom ruk kaf raglehem bolachem. All the place which treads soul, your, plural, foot, therein, yours. Jewish writers of the past arrogantly state that this is an unconditional statement, meaning that anywhere in the world that they walk becomes their possession. The notion is faulty on two levels. First, it is not unconditional. The entire context of the passage clearly shows that the people must be obedient to the precepts laid out before them. And secondly, the area is clearly defined in the following words, limiting them to a specific parcel of land and no other. If they fail to be obedient, whatever they possess will not be theirs. In other words, even if Jews live in another area of the world and own the land on which they live, it is still not the land belonging to them meaning an Israelite land. It is the land of the nations that they simply dwell in. The land they are given as a people is clearly defined as, verse 24 continues, from the wilderness and Lebanon. Min ha midbar veha Lebanon, from the wilderness and to the Lebanon. I inserted the word to so you can see the difference. It is the southern and northern borders. 
The wilderness refers to the wilderness of Zin, as was defined in Numbers 34, verse 2, and that extended to the west along the Wadi of Egypt, which drains out into the Mediterranean Sea. The northern border is the border of Lebanon, and further, verse 24 continues, from the river, the river Euphrates, even to the western sea, shall be your territory. To the east, the land is promised to extend all the way to the Euphrates River. To the west, it extends to the Mediterranean Sea, here called Hayam Ha'acharon, or the sea, the hindermost. The meaning is that it is behind one who is standing in Canaan, looking to the east. The land, as defined in Numbers 34, was only inclusive of Canaan and also the land settled by Reuben Gad in the half-tribe of Manasseh, which is east of the Jordan. However, that could and it should be extended even as far as the Euphrates, as was promised to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. There it said in verse 19, to your descendants I have given this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. It would not be until the time of Solomon that this would be realized. And not long after Solomon's death, the land would begin to diminish due to disobedience. That is recorded in 1 Kings chapter 4. Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand by the sea in multitude, eating and drinking and rejoicing. So Solomon reigned over all kingdoms from the river, meaning the Euphrates, to the land of the Philistines, as far as the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. Only during the reign of Solomon is this recorded. What we have in this verse poignantly and remarkably is restated to Joshua. In Joshua 1, it says, Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you, as I said to Moses, from the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites and to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. There in Joshua, the Lord says, as I said to Moses, and yet, that is not recorded anywhere but here where Moses has been speaking in the first person or referring to the Lord in the third person. One can clearly see the doctrine of divine inspiration in these words here in Deuteronomy. Verse 25, no man shall be able to stand against you. The Hebrew is more expressive. Lo yitzav ish bifnechem. No shall stand man in your face, meaning in your presence. The pronoun remains second person plural. And so it is saying that each person will be victorious over the foes he faces, or if the leader of another group comes against Israel as the representative of his people, he would not be able to stand against them. The people of Israel would defeat the enemies they faced because, verse 25 going on, the Lord your God will put the dread of you and the fear of you. Moses uses two words, both nouns, to describe how the Lord will affect the people. One is pachad, signifying a state of alarm. It is something felt and thus dread. The second is almost a synonym of the first, morah. It is a terror or a fear. And this will be, verse 25 continues, upon all the land where you tread. Again, the Hebrew is more expressive. Al kal ha'aretz asher tidreku ba. Upon face all the land which you tread in. Moses then says, verse 25 continues, just as he said to you. These words were first prophesied in Exodus 15, verse 16, using one of the same words as here. That was in anticipation of Israel's arrival. It was then explicitly stated in Deuteronomy 2 with these words, this day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you upon the nations under the whole heaven, who shall hear the report of you and shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. 
There, instead of mora, the word yira was seen, another synonymous word. As has been seen before, the changing of words in this manner gives clear evidence of Mosaic authorship. Anyone else would have carefully copied the first two words if they were claiming that the Lord had said them. Moses, however, felt free to speak in synonyms to convey his intent. Great things I have promised to you, if you will be faithful to my word. The promises shall stand what I say is true, if you will faithfully attend to what you have heard. I shall bless you with a blessing in this land, and you shall prosper in accord with my word. None who come against you shall be able to stand, if you will faithfully attend to what you have heard. I shall be with you always and never forsake you. This is my promise, my spoken word, and it shall stand because what I say is true, if you will faithfully attend to what you have heard. Our second thought today, Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. It's verses 26 through 32. Verse 26, Behold, I set before you today a blessing and a curse. Moses now sums up his words, calling the people to careful attention with the words, Ra'e anochi noten lifnechem hayom beracha u kelala. Look, I set to your faces this day blessing and cursing. The words shout out for attention and careful heeding of what is said. With this openly stated and carefully worded, Moses now continues on with the Bible's clear revelation of the doctrine known as free will. It takes us back to the very first recorded words from the Lord to man in Genesis 2. Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. In the statement set before Adam were words of blessing or cursing. Blessing if he obeyed, cursing if he disobeyed. The choice was his, and the consequences were thus his. If this were not so, sin could not have been imputed. But it was. The same is true with Israel now with Moses. The law is given, and the choice of outcome is clearly set before the faces of the people. Verse 27, the blessing if you obey the commandments. The translation is lacking. It says, Asher tishmeru el mitzvot, when you all hearken unto the commandments. Using the word if, if you obey the commandments, makes the entire thought sound conditional in the doing. Rather, it is in the receiving after the doing. The Lord will, in fact, give the blessing when the command is hearkened unto, meaning heard and applied. Verse 27 continues, of the Lord your God, which I command you today. Again, the synergistic, meaning the working together nature of divine inspiration is seen right here. These are the commands of Jehovah Elohim, and yet it is Moses who is speaking them out as commands to Israel. It is what Peter clearly states to us in 1 Peter 1, knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Verse 28, and the curse, if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God. Here the word if is correct, im lo tishmeru, if no you, all, plural, do hearken. They will receive the blessing when they hearken unto the commandments, and they will receive the cursing if they do not hearken unto them. In other words, the expectation is obedience, even if both the Lord and Moses know that it will not be coming. Verse 28 continues, but turn aside from the way which I command you today. 
The words, if you do not hearken, are now supplemented. If you do not hearken, but turn aside from the way. It is this which brings the cursing. There is the way which is right, and there is taking another path which must be punished. That is specifically a violation of the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. As Moses says, verse 28 going on, to go after other gods which you have not known. Of this, Matthew Poole rightly says, which you have no acquaintance with, nor experience of their power or wisdom or goodness as you have had of mine. That is then supplemented with the words of Cambridge, who I normally only quote in the negative because they're such poor scholars, but they rightly say they are gods in contradistinction to Jehovah, the revealed God made known to them by word and deed. Israel may have, in fact, known other gods, but it was only as a head knowledge, not something experiential. Jehovah had revealed himself through his deeds, and he had revealed himself through his law. Both thoughts were expressed by Moses in chapter 4. It says there in 4, verses 7 and 8, For what great nation is there that has God so near to it, as the Lord our God is to us, for whatever reason we may call upon him? And what great nation is there that has such statutes and righteous judgments as are in all this law which I set before you this day? Jehovah was near to Israel in action, and he was near to Israel in law. To follow another path would be to reject the fountain of both of these marvelous flows of protection and life. To permanently set this in their minds, Moses next commands, verse 29. Now it shall be, when the Lord your God has brought you into the land which you go to possess. The words of this verse move to the singular, you, Israel. It is a marvelous transition and an assurance that the nation as a whole will be brought into Canaan and the nation shall possess it. But more, not all of the people who go into Canaan will participate in what will be directed. And some who are not yet of Israel will participate in it. For example, the noted troublemaker, Achan of Israel in Joshua chapter 7 will be dead by the time the events to be relayed by Moses will come about. And Rahab the harlot will be brought into Israel, specifically the tribe of Judah by this time. Thus, the transition of the verse to the singular speaks not of all before Moses now, but of the nation Israel before him now. Does everybody see what I just said? He's been speaking in the plural. You all, you all. And all of a sudden, he changes in the singular. He had to do that because if he said in the plural, it would mean that Ahan, who disobeyed the Lord, would be included in what is being now conveyed. But he didn't. He changed to the singular. And people love to find the Bible at fault and say, oh, there's an error, or Moses didn't write that, or that was inserted by somebody 400 years later, when in fact there is a definite purpose for every single time that this changes from the singular to the plural and back again. Every single time. What is said here is a precursor to what Moses will more fully explain in Deuteronomy chapter 27. They are also shown to be fulfilled exactingly in Joshua chapter 8. The instruction to Israel is, verse 29 continues, that you shall put the blessing on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Ebal. The Hebrew reads give, not put. Natan is the word. As will be seen in chapter 27, the blessings and the curses were written on the altar on Mount Ebal. However, they were called out or given by the people of selected tribes from both mountains. The name Gerizim comes from the word garaz, to cut cut up or cut off. Being a plural word, the meaning is something like the cutters, the cutters down. 
it may refer to those who harvest due to the fertility of the mountain. Now keep the imagery in your mind as we're going along. What did I just say about the mountain? It's fertile. And so they have people cutting down crops on the mountain, the cutters down. Everybody got that? The name Ebal comes from an unused root, meaning to be bald, probably signifying the bald appearance of the mountain. To this day, it's that way. Thus, it means something like bare or heap of barrenness. What did he say to put on Mount Gerizim? No, Mount Gerizim, the blessing, Mount Ebal, the cursing. Is anybody seeing it already? Of these two facing mountains, Gerizim is to the south and Ebal is to the north. Or, in reference to the layout of directions in the Bible, Gerizim is to the right and Ebal is to the left. Thus, it matches the scriptural pattern of the right hand of blessing and the left hand of cursing. For example, Matthew 25, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. In the state of the two mountains, one can see a contrast. The Mount of Blessing is the fertile mountain. The Mountain of Curse is the bald mountain. Thus, there is metaphor being conveyed. Obedience to the Lord will bring blessing to the land, while disobedience will bring a curse. It is further interesting that the altar where the law was to be inscribed on whitewashed stones, and as is stated in Deuteronomy 27, verses 4 through 8, it was to be on Mount Ebal, the mountain to the left. In other words, it anticipates Paul's words, which are found in Galatians chapter 3. Paul says, For as many as are of works of the law are under a curse for it is written cursed is everyone who does not continue in all the things which are written in the book of the law to do them but that no one is justified by the law in the sight of god is evident for the just shall live by faith yet the law is not of faith but the man who does them shall live by them christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law think of mount Ebal, the mountain where the law has been inscribed he has redeemed us from the curse of the law having become a curse for us for it is written cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree that the blessing of abraham might come upon the gentiles in christ jesus that we might receive the promise of the spirit through faith the very words that will be spoken out by the people in Deuteronomy 27, verse 26, are the same words Paul cites in Galatians 3. The law cannot justify, and only a curse results from the giving of the law. As far as the location of Gerizim, the more favored mountain, that of blessing, it is not mentioned by name in the New Testament, but it is seen there nonetheless when it is referred to in John chapter 4. Here's where we have the woman at the well with Jesus. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, Mount Gerizim. And you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. Mount Gerizim is the mountain she is referring to. For the Samaritans, this was their place of worship. 
For the Jews, Jerusalem was their place of worship, but the Lord corrected her and any Jews who would pay heed. Salvation is of the Jews because of the coming of Messiah. But Jerusalem was only a place that anticipated him. And later in the book of Galatians, Paul equates Jerusalem with what? With the law. Remember that? You've got Sarah and you've got Hagar. Hagar is the mountain with the, she's the bondwoman. She's the one. And he says that's equated to Jerusalem. So both Mount Gerizim and Jerusalem are equated to the law and the law can have no part of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. What was there and what occurred there only pictured his fulfillment of those things. It is in him and in any location that those who are in him may be the true worship of God through him, meaning Jesus Christ, may be found. Of these dueling mountains, Moses next says, verse 30, are they not on the other side of the Jordan? The Hebrew doesn't say the other side. It says inside the Jordan. It can refer to either side. But it is then explained by the next words. Verse 30 going on toward the setting sun. Ahare derek mebo hashemesh. After way going down the sun. What this might be saying is that one of the main roads going north and south through Canaan was known as the way of the west. Similar to another such road that would have run in the same manner on the east side of the Jordan. The mountains were to the west of that way and so it means westward toward the setting sun. This is a new noun in scripture, mabo, or an entrance. In this case, it is an entrance in that the sun is going down. Now picture this, here's the horizon, and the sun is going down. That's an entrance, if you know what I'm saying. It's entering the down place. Okay, everybody got that. As is stated in Malachi 1 verse 11, where the last use of the word is seen. For from the rising of the sun, even to its mabo, it's going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. In every place, incense shall be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. It may be, and this is a note of Charlie Garrett's speculation here, that this phrase could be figuratively showing that the law is merely a transitional part of the redemptive plan. The sun rises in the east and it sets in the west, with the greatness of the name of the Lord being proclaimed by the Gentiles throughout the entire extent of that happening. This appears to be so based on the last use of the word shemesh, or sun, in the Old Testament which is referring at that time metaphorically to Jesus Christ, our Lord. But to you who fear my name, the sun, the shemesh of righteousness shall arise. As the sun actually never sets, but simply disappears from view. Now that's why that word mabo is so important. This verse may be an allusion to the fact that Christ is the embodiment of this law that holds both the blessing and the cursing for Israel. The name of the Lord Jesus is great among the nations from the rising of the sun to its going down. Verse 30 continues, In the land of the Canaanites who dwell in the plain opposite Gilgal beside the terebinth trees of Moreh. Here it says, Ha Gilgal, the Gilgal, meaning the wheel. Thus, it is a known circle of stones that is referred to here. The importance of these words takes us back to Genesis chapter 12. There the Lord vowed to bless Abraham and directed him to go to Canaan. After that, it said, Then Avram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people whom they had acquired in Haran, and they departed to go to the land of Canaan. 
So they came to the land of Canaan. Avram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, as far as the terebinth tree of Moreh. And the Canaanites were then in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Avram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who appeared to him. The Lord, through Moses, is calling to remembrance the promise made to Abraham. Despite the Canaanites dwelling there, he had promised it to Abraham. That promise was soon to be fulfilled through his descendants now being instructed by Moses. As the Lord is faithful to remember his promise of the land, so he will then be faithful to remember his other dealings with Abraham, including, guess what, righteousness through faith and not deeds of the law. Thus, the law that is now being set forth and which will be recorded on Mount Ebal cannot be the realization of the promise, except as it is found being fulfilled by Jesus Christ. Verse 31, for you will cross over the Jordan. In verse 29, the pronouns were in the singular for just that one verse. In verse 30, there were no pronouns referring to Israel. Now, through the end of the chapter, the pronouns return to the second person plural, you all. Here it says, Kiatem overim et hayarden, for you all are the crossers over the Jordan. As has been seen elsewhere, a pun is probably being made. The word overim, or crossers over, is identical in spelling to the word ivrim, or Hebrews. Moses is telling them that they, the Hebrews, are the crossers over the Jordan. As the Jordan is a picture and a type of Jesus Christ, it is those who cross through him that are the true Hebrews, or crossers over. It is they of whom Moses says, will cross over, verse 31 going on, and go in to possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you, and you will possess it and dwell in it. Abraham was the first noted Hebrew. He was promised the land, as were his descendants after him. But that is only a part of the promise. In Genesis 22, after not withholding his son Isaac, the Lord said to him, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies." In your seed, all nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Paul then says in Galatians chapter three, now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say and to seeds as of many, but as of one and to your seed who is Christ. And this I say that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Israel, a people under the law, are being told that they will enter the land promised to their fathers. It is a land where the Lord will dwell among them. Further, they are told that living in the land is conditional based on obedience to the law, right? Moses has said that. But the promise of blessing cannot be because of the law if Abraham was given the promise long before the time of the law. Therefore, the promise is not the land of Canaan, but only what the land of Canaan anticipates, a place where man will dwell with the Lord forever. I hope you're seeing that. If not, go back and read this four or five times and you will get it. 
That means that our final words of the passage today are to be instructive. <laughs> Verse 32 finishes with, and you shall be careful to observe all the statutes and judgments which I set before you today. The verses today close out a section of Deuteronomy that deals with the relationship of the people who were brought out of Egypt towards Jehovah their God. The next section that goes from 12.1 to 16.17 will deal with the land as the seat of worship of the Lord. For now, these words tie right back to verse 26. There Moses spoke of obeying the commandments. Now he explains that saying the statutes and the judgments. If they are to obey the statutes and judgments in order to remain in the land, then the land cannot be the sum of the promise. As Paul noted, the law cannot annul the covenant made by God in Christ to Abraham, thus making the promise of no effect. But if disobeying the law can mean there will be punishment and exile from the land, then the promise cannot merely be the land. The land is a promise and it is based on conditions but it is not the ultimate promise which comes without conditions. The promise is Christ, and he is promised before and apart from the law. This is what Israel must come to understand, and until they do, they will continue to flounder in a world without any true hope. Only in coming to Christ can the fulfillment of all of God's promises be fully realized. The law was given to show them this, and as the law was only given to Israel, it is meant as an instructive tool for them and for everyone else. The world, I got a clue for all of you, the world does not need more laws, okay? One was enough to condemn all of humanity. What the world needs is the grace of God in Jesus Christ. He is the one who is sufficient to save all of humanity, if they are but willing to come to him. The adding of the law of Moses was to teach us this in a most poignant way. Those of Israel who were considered right before the Lord were those who loved the Lord beyond the precepts of the law, not because of the precepts of the law. The law, as noble as it is, is only a reflection of the Lord. But to seek the Lord goes beyond road observance to the very heart of man, desiring intimacy with his creator, something man can employ toward the Lord apart from the law. However, that can only come about when the sin of man is dealt with. There may be people who seek after God, but they do so apart from the mediation of Christ. For example, you could say, well, no man seeks after God. You'd misquote that verse out of the book of Romans, and that's fine. But I'll give you an example. Are Jehovah's Witnesses searching after God? Well, yes, they are. They're just doing it wrong. Are Buddhists seeking after God? Yes, they are doing it wrong. Are Muslims that go and pull a cord and blow up 50,000 people seeking after God? Yes, but they're doing it wrong. That is the point that is being made here. You cannot come to God apart from the mediation of Jesus Christ. God cannot accept this. Only in the covering of man with the righteousness of Jesus Christ can God then accept him. The problem is sin. Sin comes by law, and therefore man must be given grace. The grace of God, which is found in the giving of Christ for the sin debt that that person bears. This is the continued lesson of the law. May we be wise and pay heed. It is through Christ and through Christ alone that we stand justified before the holy God. May today be the day that you realize this and call out to him for cleansing. Now, as I said, I know there were two points that I was trying to stress to you in that particular passage 
both of them in the second section, and I understand that it's hard what I was saying. You got to go back and what is he talking about with Abraham and the promise and all of that? Go back and read it a couple times and you will get it. And listen, you've listened to a sermon that took a few minutes and your head's probably thinking, I don't think I understand everything I'm saying. I had to go through this for eight hours with these verses, maybe nine, okay? And I was sitting there making sure every word is precise because the Lord is very precise in what he's presenting to us. Abraham was given a promise. This is your promise. Abraham didn't do anything. It says that Abraham believed and God credited him for righteousness. The promise stands. That was how long before the giving of the law? 400 plus years, right? 430 years. The law comes and he says, I'm going to give you this land. How can that be the promise if the promise is already by faith and not of law? That's the point. Go back and read it three or four times and you will get it. But I want you to get it because Paul dwells on it in the New Testament. Okay? We've got, uh, oh, i got to give you a call before I get into anything else. I can't neglect that. The whole point of this sermon today and the whole point of us being in this church any day of the week or every week of the year is to bring people to Jesus Christ and then to be tutored in the Word of God. But you can't know the Word of God properly without first having a relationship with Jesus Christ. You can have all the head knowledge in the world like the Pharisees did, but without the heart being tuned to the Lord, all that head knowledge does you nothing. I know because I've been in a seminary where there are professors that have all the knowledge in the world and they don't have a bit of a heart for the Lord, and it's very sad to see, okay? But what you need to do is first accept the gospel of Jesus Christ. He died for your sins, implying you're a sinner. He went into the grave, meaning he was really dead, and he came out of the grave, meaning that he had no sin of his own. He is fully God. And then from there, you simply call out in faith, I want what that says. I admit I'm a sinner. I call on Jesus. I want to be saved. And if you do that simple thing, you will be saved. Okay, and then go and live for the Lord after that. All right, I got a closing verse here for you from Galatians. It's a good book going along with the law because everything the law is commanding you, Paul seems to say something different, even though it's not different. It's that the law was a tutor to bring us to understand Christ. And then Paul explains that in relation to the law in the book of Galatians. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons it all comes back to jesus christ every single time it comes back to jesus christ all right next week is deuteronomy 12 it's verses 1 through 7 it's not intended for the one who refuses meaning any one it's entitled the place where the lord your god chooses Part one. Thank you, Jay. That'll be our 39th Deuteronomy sermon. And I forgot to tell you that, so I'm glad you got that. Because we, we would have had to combine two sermons into one if you didn't call that out. And we'd have been here a long time next week. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and he has a purpose for you. But he also has expectations for you as he prepares you for entrance into the land of promise. And so follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you, okay? Now, I just got something in my mind that I gotta get out before we read our poem, is that we go down to the projects every single Saturday, and we've been doing this for many years, and we had a guest with us yesterday. She may come back, she may not. That's totally up to her, we never ask. We never ask anybody to come to the projects. It has to be something that people wanna do from their heart. But when we get down there, a lot of people that come the first time are a little bit surprised because 
It's not a formal church setting by any stretch of the imagination. And some people there tend to cut up a little bit, okay? We have a good time. And so what I'm saying is that when you come to the projects, if you ever do, you'll see that I'm not the guy that sits in the pulpit, okay? We have a good time down there, and we want people to see us happy and enjoying ourselves. And the reason why I brought that up is because of what I just said to you. He also has expectations for you as he prepares you into entrance into his land of promise, okay? We all need to be doing something for the Lord, and it doesn't have to be in a stuffy church setting. It can be you going to a restaurant and giving one of the tracks that have not been taken lately. I've noticed I haven't had to fill the, rack, the track rack. Take those and give them out to somebody. Come to the projects if that's your thing and it's not most people's thing. I can assure you of that. And cut up with us a little bit. We have a penny-finding contest. I won again yesterday, thankfully. All right? But whatever you do, make sure that you do it because... The Lord has expectations of you before he brings you into his land of promise. Don't fritter your life away. Now is the time of God's favor. I know that second half of that is now is the time of salvation. Well, I am expecting that all of you here are saved. If you're not, shame on you. But if you are, it's still the time of God's favor for you to get out and do something for the Lord. Hand out tracts, find something to do in a ministry, or simply, you know what? Take pictures of people you know and put them on your wall. Your wall isn't so precious that you can't put people's picture on there and pray for them when you walk by, okay? We got missionaries, all of their things back there. We got missionary cards for all of them. I got one right here somewhere from Ray and uh, Jess Willett. Just put it up on your refrigerator and when you walk by, pray for them. Do something for the cause of Christ with the life that you have been given, okay? It's important. All right, our poem is called The Blessing and the Curse, but... Obviously, I have a question to ask you first, and if you get it, you will get one of these very fast sports cars to take home, okay? Uh, the blessing and the curses toward Israel will be minutely detailed in Deuteronomy 28. What other book and chapter also minutely details them? I brought this up at least in 100 sermons. What? Leviticus. Who said, doctor, you get to drive a sports car home today. Yes, you do. I'm going to put these over here right now. You pick one of these out, and if you don't want to drive it, you fill it up and give it to one of your grandchildren, okay? All right, good job. Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. Remember those. Those are the blessing and cursing chapter. Leviticus 26 is in the first person. I, the Lord, will do this to you if you don't pay heed. In Deuteronomy, Moses is the one. The Lord your God will do to you these things. He's speaking now in the third person. Either way, these are the blessings and the curses. And they came upon Israel because of their rejection of the Lord. And I know this, people don't like to hear this when I say this. I'm talking about Jewish people. If they hear my sermons, they say, I'm never going to listen to him because of what I say. But listen, it's the word of God and it is true. Would Israel be in the land today if they had paid heed to the Lord and received him? Yes. Okay, I'm not talking about, I'm talking for 2,000 years. Would they have been punished if they had received Jesus? No. When I went to Yad Vashem in Israel with my mom, and we walked out there, and it's a really moving place. I'm going to tell you what, you go through the Holocaust Museum, and you'll come out in tears. Okay? But when I walked out, I said, something is missing. I said, they need to have a copy of Deuteronomy chapter 28 transcribed into every language that they were exiled to put on the outside of Yad Vashem. Because until they acknowledge their own guilt before the Lord, they will never come to the Lord. The Lord said, I'm going to do these things. 
And like I said, I've had Jewish people say, I'm never listening to you again because of that. Listen, the Lord gives us what we deserve. And if we call on the name of the Lord Jesus, he gives us heaven. But if we don't, we are going to be cast into the lake of fire. We get what we deserve. That's just the way it is. It's serious. And I know people don't like to talk about hell, but it is reality. And what happened to the Jews may be hell for the past 2,000 years, but it was self-inflicted. Now, I'm not saying that everything that happened to them was the will of the Lord. Don't get me wrong on that. When Nebuchadnezzar went down into Israel and destroyed it, he said, this is the hammer, uh, you know, my hammer, who's going to do this? And then the Assyrians as well, they went in and they did their judgment, but they took it too far. And then what does the Lord say? I am now going to judge this nation for taking it too far. So they had the Holocaust that would not have happened if they called on Jesus Christ. But guess what? Those people took it too far. And so the Lord judged them for their actions. So you have to understand the Lord is not a vindictive God, but he is holy and he is just. Okay. Anyway, I hope you all understand what I said in the context of the way I'm trying to say it. Okay. Our poem, The Blessing and the Curse. For if you carefully keep all these commandments, which I command you to do, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to hold fast to him, pay heed, my word is true. Then the Lord will drive out all these nations from before you, like cleaning pantry shelves, and you will dispossess nations, greater and mightier nations than yourselves. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads shall be yours, from the wilderness and Lebanon in its glory, from the river the river Euphrates, even to the western sea, shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand against you. The Lord your God will put the dread of you and the fear of you upon all the land where you tread, just as he has said to you, so he shall do. Behold, I set before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and the curse if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way which I command you today to go after other gods which you have not known if you go astray. Now it shall be when the Lord your God has brought you into the land which you go to possess, that you shall put the blessing on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Abal, so to you I address." Are they not on the other side of the Jordan, toward the setting of the sun, just as I say, in the land of the Canaanites who dwell in the plain, opposite Gilgal, beside the terebinth trees of Moray? For you will cross over the Jordan and go in to possess the land, which the Lord your God is giving you, and you will possess it and dwell in it, so you shall do. And you shall be careful to observe, just as I say, all the statutes and judgments which I set before you today. Lord God, Turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. May we carefully heed each thing we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be faithful and true. And we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. amen. Heavenly Father, thank you again for the lesson of the law. Thank you that it is a stepping stone to lead us to the true riches and glory which are found in Jesus Christ our Lord. Thank you for the fact that we didn't have to go through that. I, I just cannot even imagine what it would have been like living under the law and all of the terrible burdens that were placed upon the people and how they must have thought, what are we doing from year to year? But they did have the grace each year at the Day of Atonement and they knew that they were freed from that burden. But Lord, 
We're so grateful that we have the grace completely, fully, and wholly in Jesus Christ without the burden of the law and with the guilt of imputation of sin because every one of us would be lost, eternally lost without that wonderful gift. Thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you for his fulfillment of the law. Thank you for the new covenant in his blood, which says we are yours. Thank you for that. We praise you for it, and we do so in Jesus' name. Amen.